It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode four. It is called the Munich Pact. And to be honest, uh, I have my work cut out for me uh, with this one. I could have actually said that in the previous three. I'm not sure, but I sure do feel it right now. A very, very significant event in history uh, is being drawn out in this. And it is the sort of thing that it is hard, I think, for us as humans to relate directly to it when when nations come together and make a pact. How could that possibly uh, teach us anything? And the impact of this was so severe in the time it happened before World War II. And I think for us, the same thing is true, that when we choose to pull a Munich pact in our own life, it has a disintegrating effect upon our spiritual strength, which is why it's important, I think, for me to draw it out and for us to sort of understand the significance of what this is. So part four, the Munich pact. This is an odd screen for me to start with. So if you're getting the video, you're staring at this and going, huh, that's an interesting statement, Eric. The strange human potential, sacrificing our children for convenience. You know, it's interesting, depending on what time period you came from, you know, we're all modern uh, in our time period. And so the idea of sacrificing our children for convenience is sort of the workaholic who is like, you know what, I just want to make some money and I want to do well. Or it's the, it's the dad that leaves the family and just says, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my children for a more convenient life. It's a truth. And it does happen that way. Back in ye olden days, there really was a sacrifice where a child would be laid on an altar and actually killed so that the parents could, could experience more convenience. That's quite a statement. And so when I say the strange human potential, I think many of us would start, if you ever heard about something like that, you would say, no way would a parent ever do that. And yes, uh, yet I could say, yes way. Uh, that has happened all throughout history. Ezekiel 16, 20 through 21, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. You have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire. So that's a little confusing to us, to be honest. Ezekiel just in and of itself is somewhat of a mysterious book, and we could try and write these things off as great mysteries. When in actuality, we do more, know more than this, and that is uh, something that Matthew Henry can help us understand here. There's a specific god named Moloch, and so he is going to uh, describe that. Moloch, as some think, was the idol in and by which they worshiped the sun, that great fire of the world, and therefore in the worship of it, they made their own children sacrifices to this idol, burning them to death before it imagining that the consecrating of but one of their children in this manner to Moloch would procure good fortune for all the rest of their children. Now, you can sort of see the reasoning there. Uh, yes, it's terrible, right? And I, I do not condone it. But try and get into the skin of someone who might do this. And you could say, well, so you're saying if I trade out this child and sacrifice him to Moloch, then that is going to give fortune for the rest of my children. 
And you could sort of understand just to sacrifice one in order to secure the fortunes, the good fortunes and the great future of the others. You know what? Hey, maybe we should pause here. Maybe we should consider. There are some places of assumed safety. In fact, there's reasons why we assume them to be safe, and that is because of the wiring that God has set inside of us. Let me go through this short list. A mother's womb, a marriage covenant, a family's trust, a parent's love, a church fellowship. You see, that list is just a short list of territory that in Scripture God is going to say is inviolable. He's going to say we don't violate that, we don't harm that. And yet, if you were to go through that list, just with me, a mother's womb, a marriage covenant, a family's trust, a parent's love, a church fellowship, those have become the places of greatest pain for many of us listening to this. A mother's womb, abortion, huge issue today. A marriage covenant, supposedly, now I I don't know that this has actually ever been proven to me, but that the divorce rate amongst Christians is higher than the divorce rate amongst those who don't even claim to know Christ. And so uh, that's shocking. A family's trust, a parent's love, most of the pain that we, those of us listening to this, have have incurred in our life could probably directly be related to family pain. A church fellowship, I could almost say enough said. These are places of assumed safety, and yet in our modern day have become places of dreadful fear, pain, and trauma. The power of treaty, a league between nations. Now, I'm putting some just raw data out on the table here, and I'm just going to do that for a while. I'm going to get some concepts out on the table. I'm going to get some history out onto the table. But a treaty is a negotiation, an agreement uh, between nations. And as I say here, a league between nations. And in this story, we're going to have a nation called Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia is a small nation, and it is very vulnerable to the growing empire of Germany. And Germany, of course, at the end of the Versailles Treaty, uh, was you know, decimated, and its economic systems were you know, put under the damper pedal of the Allied uh, forces, and their military forces were depleted. But something has begun to happen between 1935 and 1939, which is causing these forces to be replenished. It's the it's the rise of Hitler, and Hitler is beginning to build their military. He's beginning to violate this treaty that he has uh, called the Versailles Treaty, and this is going to cause the Allies to have to make decisions, and this, to many people in history, is called the season of appeasement, where Great Britain and France, who have the upper hand, they have the thumb over Germany, feel bad about the Versailles Treaty, and they don't want war to be renewed. They don't want to ever go back uh, to those fighting days back like World War I, and so as a result, they are passively allowing Hitler to grow stronger. One of the challenges that is going to come up in this is that Czechoslovakia is going to find itself extremely vulnerable. Czechoslovakia is not a slouch. It is a pretty stout military power, and yet it is smaller than this growing power of Germany. And so the one thing Czechoslovakia has on its side is that it has a treaty. It has a treaty with the Allies that if they are ever in need, or if Germany were to ever attack it, the Allies would come to their aid. Whew, that's good to know. And so in a sense, I'm going to set this storyline up as if Great Britain in our story is like the parent. And it has a child known as Czechoslovakia. And 
Great Britain needs to make a choice. Is it going to help its child in a time of need, or is it going to sacrifice this child for convenience? So I have a list on the screen here, and these are very, very significant things. If you know the basis of World War II, there's a lot more to it than these five things because you have to say World War I is the basis of World War II, truly. And what is taking place in Germany because of World War I and because of the Versailles Treaty, because of you know Hitler's uh, conspiracy theory known as the stab-in-the-back theory that the Jews and the Bolsheviks did this to Germany, there's a lot going on in addition to this, but... In a basic outline, I have, number one, conscription. Number two, the Rhineland. Number three, Austria. Number four, the Sudetenland. And number five, Czechoslovakia. These are steps that are going to be taken by Hitler that are not going to be responded to by the Allies. They have every reason to respond to them because conscription means to start to build a military service again, where you begin to take men from your nation and put them into military training. That's a no-no. According to the Versailles Treaty, Germany is not allowed to do this. But they snubbed their nose at this, having a confidence that Great Britain and France will do nothing about it. And they're right. And so they begin to build up a mighty military machine, and Great Britain and France do nothing about it. The second one on the list is the Rhineland. The Rhineland is a territory of Germany that is adjacent to France. This is a territory that, according to the Versailles Treaty, Germany is not allowed to have any armed troops in. And yet what Hitler does is not only conscript and bring in a military system and start to build up a military power, but then he does the audacious. He actually moves this military strength up to that border, into the Rhineland. And guess what? Great Britain and France do nothing. And then, because Great Britain and France are doing nothing, Hitler turns his eyes longingly towards Austria, and he does the unthinkable. He invades it. And now, what is more unthinkable is that Great Britain and France do nothing. Now, on the list, it says the Sudetenland. That's a piece of Czechoslovakia. And because Germany uh, believes that those that are in Sudetenland are German, it is going to make the appeal to the Allies to let them have it. Otherwise, you get the very clear idea that they're going to invade it and they're going to take it by force. And this leads us to where we're at now. You see, I have another thing on the list called Czechoslovakia, but we'll get to that in a bit. Sort of the, the essence of this particular message, since it's called the Munich Pact, is going to be right here at this point. But we're going to see the fallout because of it. So I have a picture on the screen that I gave. I think this was in episode one. And it's a picture of Germany during World War II. And it looks like a monster, which is why I put a monster body on it and put some monster eyes on it. It just looks sort of mean. And if you look at the mouth area of that monster, you'll understand the significance of what we're talking about today, because that in that mouth is Czechoslovakia. <laughs> and uh, it is, remember, Czechoslovakia has a treaty with the Allies, with Great Britain and France, that if they are ever invaded, that Great Britain and France would come to their aid, that they're the big brother, or as I'm presenting it today, they're the parent. So let's go back, and we're going to start with conscription. And what you're going to see is that uh, Germany is a lot smaller at that time. Uh, and so they're going to begin to build up their military machine. And then we're going to go to the next slide, and I say the Rhineland. You're gonna, so I emphasize the Rhineland territory on the head of the monster. And you're going to see that's the territory they are not allowed to have armed troops in, but they move their armed troops there. And then 
they grow in size. Why? Because they claim Austria. They invade Austria and the Allies do nothing. Now we have ourselves the monster. And then the Sudetenland, which is where we're going to be in this story, is that little part inside the mouth. And you'll notice that it surrounds uh, Czechoslovakia. And if you look close at Czechoslovakia in that picture, it looks like a, a, a woman crying for help. I think that has always stood out to me as just a profound thing. Now, maybe I'm the only one that sees things like that. However, I see it and I feel it in this story. So this, is, this guy has a tough name to say, Kurt von Schnuschnig. Isn't that sort of a fun name to say, though? I'm going to say it again just because it's sort of fun. Kurt von Schuschnig. This is what he says to Hitler. He's one of Hitler's advisors. I realize that you can march into Austria, but Mr. Chancellor, whether we wish it or not, that would lead to the shedding of blood. We are not alone in the world. That probably means war. Now, everyone even on Hitler's staff knows that Hitler shouldn't be doing this because the allies are going to respond. But Hitler knows something. He knows, he has this hunch, and he, he is, he's right. And that is that they so desperately don't want to go to war that they are going to overlook him invading Austria. And he is right. Listen to Adolf Hitler. This is a quote back in that time period. Don't believe that anyone in the world will hinder me in my decisions. Italy, I am quite clear with Mussolini. With Italy, I am on the closest possible terms. England, England will not lift a finger for Austria. In France, well, two years ago when we marched into the Rhineland with a handful of battalions, at that moment, I risked a great deal. If France had marched then, we should have been forced to withdraw. But for France, it is now too late. That is a haunting statement in history to be able to look back and recognize what that appeasement can lead to and what it can lead to in our own lives. The justification, because we so crave the comforts around us, that we will justify decisions of compromise under the banner of convenience. Winston Churchill says this, Hitler's generals were aghast at running such risks when by waiting a few years, the German army would again be master. Although Hitler's political judgment had been proved correct by the pacifism and weakness of the Allies about conscription, the Rhineland and Austria, the German high command could not believe that Hitler's bluff would succeed a fourth time. I don't know that any of us can believe it could succeed either. Winston Churchill continues, It seemed so much beyond the bounds of reason that great victorious nations, possessing evident military superiority, would once again abandon the path of duty and honor, which was also for them the path of common sense and prudence. Now, I could read that same quote of Winston Churchill and apply it to the church. I'll at least try. It seems so much beyond the bounds of reason that great victorious, you know, the great victorious body of Christ, possessing evident military superiority over the powers of darkness, would once again abandon the path of duty and honor, obedience, which was also for them the path of common sense and prudence. Why would we leave a path? You ever looked at the Old Testament and looked at Israel? God reveals himself to Israel. Israel has Jehovah. And if they just walk in agreement with Jehovah, everything is going to go great. And yet they, they abandon Jehovah and they turn to other gods. They turn to Moloch, for, for instance, and sacrifice their children in the fire. You have Jehovah, O Israel. And we could say, and church, you have Jesus. 
You have his purchase at the cross. You have his authoritative position. What are you thinking? Adolf Hitler said this, I will decide to take action against Czechoslovakia only if I am firmly convinced, as in the case of the Rhineland and the entry into Austria, that France will not march and that therefore England will not intervene. You see, Hitler is evaluating how the Allies are responding. Meanwhile, he's building up his strength in Germany, but he is watching and he is guessing. His, his advisors can't imagine that Great Britain and France will do nothing. And yet, Hitler proves himself right, proves himself right again, proves himself right, proves himself right. And now he, we're at a crux in the story. In steps Neville Chamberlain, who's the prime minister for Great Britain, the one that history unfortunately ends up booing. He was, I'm sure, a very nice man. But he was sort of the political representative of, the great, of great Britain's mindset at the time, which was peace, peace, peace at all costs. We do not want to even show aggression lest it stimulate another war. And so as a result, the powers of darkness increased their control over Europe. Here's what Neville Chamberlain said. You have only to look at the map to see that nothing that France or we could do possibly we could do could possibly save Czechoslovakia from being overrun by the Germans if they wanted to do it. I have therefore abandoned any idea of giving guarantees to Czechoslovakia or to the French in connection with her obligations to that country. And so Great Britain is washing their hands saying, look, there is nothing we can do. If Germany wanted to take Czechoslovakia, there's nothing we could do to stop them. So therefore, we are going to abandon any idea of intervening, which is another way of saying, oh, people, oh, populace that are you know, keeping me in office, just know what you are craving, which is no war, no war, no war, peace, peace, peace at all costs. I am standing for you, standing with you in that conclusion. Winston Churchill says this, the declarations of British and French statesmen were, of course, studied in Berlin. The intention of these Western powers to persuade the Czechs to be reasonable in the interests of European peace was noted with satisfaction. The Munich Pact. So the Munich Pact is what I named this entire message. And in summary, what the Munich Pact is, is a meeting of nations, mainly, we're going to say Great Britain and Germany even though it involved other nations. And it is about this territory known as the Sudetenland, which is that inner part of what I was calling the mouth of the beast. And the Munich Pact, in summary, was a decision to give up the Sudetenland to Germany, and it was reached in exchange for something, peace. Hitler promised that he had no more interest beyond that, and if they would just allow him to have the Sudetenland in addition to taking the Rhineland, in addition to the conscription, in addition to taking Austria, if they would turn a blind eye and let him have that, well, then he will offer them peace as the guarantee. It's called the Munich Pact. And Hitler was a liar. You see, I want you to recognize that whenever someone is a liar, you don't want to negotiate peace terms with them. When Jesus says that the devil was a liar from the beginning— and the only thing he knows how to do is lie, I think it's important that we remember that. And when we see the Munich Pact, that we hold on to that data. And we remember that we do not negotiate with the powers of darkness. Neville Chamberlain came back to a applauding crowd. This was a massive political success for him at the time, by the way. 
that faded pretty quickly. But he, his big statement was, I believe it is peace for our time. And everyone cheered, standing ovations. He had negotiated. I mean, he's up for a Nobel Peace Prize for this. I mean, this is the ultimate thing for, for you know, the world. We have negotiated peace. Hitler has promised to not lift a finger and to not pursue any more territory. And Hitler was a liar. Benito Mussolini commented, these men, speaking of the British leadership, are not made of the same stuff as Francis Drake and the other magnificent adventurers who created the empire. They are, after all, the tired sons of a long line of rich men. So other nations are beginning to realize that Great Britain has no backbone. They have no fight. They are literally allowing Hitler to do whatever Hitler wants to do. Galeazzo Ciano, uh, another fun name to say, said the British do not want to fight. He was one of the advisors of Mussolini. They try to draw back as slowly as possible, but they do not want to fight. Every nation is seeing this. Italy is going to side with Hitler in this. They are going to see a ripe opportunity to actually invade Great Britain and take territory that they've never been able to get. Italy has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here because Great Britain is so weak they have disarmed all their military strength. And so if they side with Hitler, they can gain territory. Benito Mussolini, this is a really haunting statement here. Lord Perth, the British ambassador, has submitted for our approval the outlines of the speech that Chamberlain, remember Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of Great Britain, will make in the House of Commons in order that we may suggest changes if necessary. I believe this is the first time that the head of the British government has submitted to a foreign government the outlines of one of his speeches. It's a bad sign for them. Neville Chamberlain is interested in peace, and so he is willing to pursue that peace even at the cost of his own dignity and the cost of all those nations that he has treaties with. So let's look at our list. Conscription. It was overlooked for the sake of peace. Number two, the Rhineland. It was overlooked for the sake of peace. Austria, it was overlooked for the sake of peace. The Sudetenland, it was overlooked for the sake of peace. This Munich Pact may have brought a sense of peace and a sense of a hope and a future to Great Britain, but it created chaos in Czechoslovakia. Suddenly, Czechoslovakia has lost all of its moorings. It has a clear sense that it has been betrayed by its parents, by its older brother. And as a result, it feels extremely vulnerable because though Neville Chamberlain trusts Hitler, Czechoslovakia doesn't. Are we sacrificing our children for the sake of peace? Now, I know some of you could say, well, I don't have any kids, so no. But I, I don't think this has to just apply to children, children. It's anything that is reliant upon you, anything that you are responsible to care for, and if you look at scripture, you could actually come to the conclusion that there's quite a few things that the body of Christ, we as the body of Christ, have been entrusted with. If you were to say, who's responsible for the poor? Who's responsible for the unborn? Who's responsible in this generation to stand up for those that are hurting, the foreigner in our midst, the imprisoned, the thirsty, the hungry, the naked? Who's responsible? It's an interesting question that I think we need to allow to just set in front of us. And I want to ask this again. Are we sacrificing our children for the sake of peace? Are we pulling a Neville Chamberlain as the powers of darkness increase in this earth? Are we justifying for peace in one area of our life the harming 
of another dimension of our responsibility. I'm going to read to you portions of a speech. And it's a speech by Winston Churchill, October 5th, 1938. This is immediately following the Munich Agreement. And it's about the British policy towards Germany. So it has two different names. The one is Disaster of the First Magnitude, quite the name. And another name, it's well known as a, do- a Total and Unmitigated Defeat. And he is going to get up in the House of Commons. Now, at this time, Winston Churchill is not a popular guy. He has been against Hitler and against all of these stages of appeasement that I have mentioned. And he has uh, been called uh, a warmonger and a fearmonger. And he is not popular in the political side of things. Socially, he is somewhat of an outcast at this exact moment. But he still is going to share his thoughts. And what's interesting is in hindsight, you look back and you say, this man saw something that no one else was willing to see. And so I think... uh, Well, I'm going to at least hope that you understand uh, this incredible speech by Winston Churchill. I'm taking out portions of it, and hopefully it all makes sense. I will begin, says Winston Churchill, by saying what everybody would like to ignore or forget, but which must nevertheless be stated, namely, that we have sustained a total and unmitigated defeat. And I will say this, that I believe the Czechs, I mean Czechoslovakians, left to themselves and told they were going to get no help from the Western powers, would have been able to make better terms than they have got. They could hardly have worse. I have always held the view that the maintenance of peace depends upon the accumulation of deterrence against the aggressor, coupled with a sincere effort to redress grievances. Between submission and immediate war, there was a third alternative, which gave a hope not only of peace but of justice. It is quite true that such a policy, in order to succeed, demanded that Britain should declare straight out and a long time beforehand that she would, with others, join to defend Czechoslovakia against an unprovoked aggression. His Majesty's government refused to give that guarantee when it would have saved the situation. All is over. Czechoslovakia recedes into the darkness. She has suffered in every respect by her association with the Western democracies and with the League of Nations, of which she has always been an obedient servant. What is the remaining position of Czechoslovakia? Not only are they politically mutilated, but economically and financially they are in complete confusion. Their banking, their railway arrangements are severed, and their industries are curtailed, and the movement of their population is most cruel. It is a tragedy which has occurred. I venture to think that the future Czechoslovakian state cannot be maintained as an independent entity. You will find that in a period of time measured only by months, Czechoslovakia will be engulfed in the Nazi regime. I'm going to read that again because at the time, Czechoslovakia was still independent. It had just lost the Sudetenland, but it was in a complete destabilized state because of what had happened, because of the Munich Pact. But listen to what Churchill says. You will find that in a period of time measured only by months, Czechoslovakia will be engulfed in the Nazi regime. And that is exactly what happened. At this time, it was guessed by the Allies that it would have taken 30 divisions of German military power. That's a lot of military power to overcome Czechoslovakia. And yet, because of the Munich Pact, it totally hollowed out the ability for Czechoslovakia to defend itself. It is, this is continuation of that speech. It is the most grievous consequence which we have yet experienced of what we have done and of what we have left undone in the last five years. Five years of futile good intention. 
Five years of eager search for the line of least resistance. Five years of uninterrupted retreat of British power. Five years neglect of our air defenses. We have been reduced from a position of security, of safety, and power. Power to do good, power to be generous to a beaten foe, power to make terms with Germany, power to give her proper redress for her grievances, power to stop her arming if we chose, power to step to take any step in strength or mercy or justice which we thought right, reduced in five years from a position safe and unchallenged to where we stand now. now if you read Winston Churchill's memoirs, it is deeply stirring. You could say disturbing, but at the same time, when I go through these things, when I meditate upon these things, it, de it deals with a part of me that is very similar to Neville Chamberlain because I think we just all carry this around. It is a human side, a flesh side to us that craves comfort, that craves peace, that does not want uh, challenge in our life. We do not want uh, things to stand in the way of us just being able to live the life that we dream of living. And yet God doesn't assign us to a life that is separated from the idea of inconvenience. We are called straight into the territory of challenge. And that is the Christian life. Anyone who would follow Christ must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him. Last time I checked, a cross is a tremendous inconvenience to something known as comfort. So here's our list. Conscription. Hitler moves to raise an army. It's overlooked for the sake of peace. Number two, the Rhineland. It's overlooked for the sake of peace when he moves his soldiers into that territory. Austria, when he overwhelms Austria with military power, it's overlooked for the sake of peace. The Sudetenland, the Munich Pact, Pact it is overlooked, it is forsaken for the sake of peace. And then finally, Czechoslovakia. Just as Churchill predicted, they were overrun by the Nazis. And of course, at this time, Neville Chamberlain is going to wake up and realize that he has been lied to. 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 But because of that pursuit, it was political, it was social. You see, his country that he represented wanted peace at all costs. And that's what he represented. He represented their will. And as a result, they still had peace internally, but they were losing it quickly because now Hitler had control over Europe. And he is soon going to invade Poland, which is going to begin World War II. The line in the sand is going to be drawn, and England is going to say enough is enough. Understanding the claim of the weaker. I, I'm going to try and reason this through with all of us and see if you can grasp what I mean by this. But God is a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of widows. And when a widow comes to God, they have, in a sense, a claim on who he is. That's his nature. It's his promise. An orphan can pray to God, and God, without delay, ought to prove himself a father to them, because that's who he is. This is how he defines himself. And so when we take the logical step in the New Covenant understanding, a lot of us sort of lose track of these, this connective tissue that takes place when Jesus calls us his body. But in a sense, we are the representatives of the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows in this natural realm. Because this is, the church of Jesus Christ is his mechanism by revealing that aspect of his nature. 
So we have a tendency to look at an orphan and we say, well, I'm glad God is a father to them. Or look at a widow and say, well, I'm glad God is a defender of them. Instead of recognizing that that widow and that orphan technically have a claim on us, the body of Christ, that we have been set free and we have been given grace and we have been given strength and we have been given supply. Why? So that we could use it in agreement with the Spirit's demand. Where is God's heart going? It is not going just towards our security and our satisfaction. It is going towards those that are weaker. This is God's heart, and we are the expressors of that heart. So I'm going to call it the claim of the weaker. That orphan, in a strange sense, has a claim on the body of Christ. Me, in particular, as a member of the body of Christ. That widow has a claim. That the one who was naked, the one who was hungry, in a sense, they have a claim on us. Now, instead of arguing that or trying to shoo that away, what if you were to embrace that thought? How would it alter your life? Psalm 82, 3 through 4, defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 72, 4, he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. James 2, 15 through 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. There seems to be something about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside the saints of God that when it's genuine faith moves us to action. And a life or a believer's life that is non-active has to question if it's genuine faith. Proverbs 3, 27 through 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. So one of the things that we could say, which is very similar to what Neville Chamberlain is going to say in 1938, but it's impossible. Now, why did he say that? Well, because to try and rescue Czechoslovakia, I mean, there's really not a lot of options here. So let's go to the negotiating table. Let's give up a little of the Sudetenland in exchange for peace. That is a far more wise maneuver. So we come to a conclusion that to rescue the weaker is impossible. And many of us could even have that conclusion now. It's interesting because even in my life, I, you know, my children could say things. I have four adopted kids and they could, you know, they brought it up. Are you, daddy, you know, what about adopting again? And I almost feel like Neville Chamberlain. You know, I could do four adoptions, but a fifth one? Ah, I, I, it's impossible because in and of myself, I feel thin. I feel like I don't have the resource. I feel like I don't have the energy. I, 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 God, please don't ask me to do that. And yet we have been set here in this world with an assignment and we need to trust that it's not up to us and our ability to pull off this assignment. Who is the one that gives us grace? Who is the one that gives us power for the task? So I'll read the quote from Neville Chamberlain again and see if you can identify with it. You only have to look at the map to see that nothing that France or we could do could possibly save Czechoslovakia from being overrun by the Germans. If they wanted to do it, I have therefore abandoned any idea of giving guarantees to Czechoslovakia or to the French in connection with her obligations to that country. So I picked a picture. I, you know, I don't know what the guy would have actually looked like uh, if we were to go back a couple thousand years. Uh, but I call him the guy in the crowd. And this is sort of maybe what he looked like. 
And this is what he said. We call it the feeding of the 5,000, but uh, look at what his quote could have been, just like a Neville Chamberlain quote or just like a quote that we could whip out. You have only to look at the scanty amount of food present to see that nothing that the disciples can do could possibly feed this multitude. If it was 5,000 men, it's possible that with women and children, it was even a bigger crowd than that. That is an astounding number for any gathering. And to feed that many people is rather a startling feat. Look at Matthew 14, verse 16. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now imagine Jesus and Neville Chamberlain having a conversation. And Neville Chamberlain says, we're going to have to let Czechoslovakia go. They're going to have to go and find their own food. We don't have anything to give. I mean, all we technically have are a few loaves and fishes. We don't have the strength, the supply, the provision to be able to help Czechoslovakia. And then Jesus says to Neville Chamberlain, they don't need to be forsaken, Neville. You give them precisely what they need right now. But, but Jesus, it's impossible. Well, everything Jesus has asked us to do falls into the category of impossible. I don't know if you've ever you know, looked into that. But everything that we are commissioned as believers to do falls into a territory. It's a territory of impossibility, and that's what causes us to lean on him in faith and to say, I know what you're asking me to do. I can't do it. But Lord, you do it, and I'll be your vehicle. I'll hand out the bread. I'll hand out the fishes. I'll do the delivery. You do the miracle. Matthew 25, 42 through 45. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's possible that we have a Czechoslovakia in our life. I can't define that for you. I can only look at my own life and evaluate Czechoslovakias. But they're usually weaker and smaller, hungry and thirsty, naked and in need. But we are in a place that God has set us with supply, with time, with energy, with truth to help them. And it's critical that we don't pull a Neville Chamberlain in 1938 because that leads to World War II in 1939. I'm going to finish with this statement. To act is our job. To pull off the impossible is his. Right now, our job isn't to figure out how to do it. Our job is to make ourselves available. Don't stare at Czechoslovakia on the map and say it's in the mouth of Germany. It's about ready to be swallowed. I'm not going to engage in that. Or we could be like Job in Job chapter 29, who when he sees the lion run away with the sheep, he runs after him, grabs him by the mane, breaks his jaw, and sets him free. Sounds a little like the shepherd David, too. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And we are his body. This is 
the heroic work that we are called to do. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.